If you have your Bibles tonight, would you turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32. And we're continuing our study, and Lord willing, we'll finish it tonight. I had <clears throat> a passage of Scripture that was really causing me some issues uh, in my understanding of this whole idea of, of marriage, divorce, remarriage, and that whole thing. And, and I really struggle with it. it really, I, I mean, I just like, Lord, I don't understand this passage of Scripture uh, and the condoning of, this, uh, of the actions it would take. And, and we'll talk about that tonight and, and moving forward. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, it hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, divorced committeth adultery. One of the things that, and I want to say this first, I, I like what uh, there was an Adrian Rogers as he he mentioned this. He says, one of the things that really bothers us today is that those who want to make divorce the unpardonable sin, they want to make divorce a dead-end street. They treat divorced people like second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven, and they sit around and pass judgment. Uh, he says, my dear friend, if you have repented of your sin and given your heart to Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. We're all equal. Put it down big. Put it down plain. And put it down straight, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. And so I just say that to say, you know what, it doesn't matter the past mistakes that we've done. We are equal before the Lord. Now, with that being said, there are obviously consequences. And I want to talk further about this. All sins are forgiven. Murder, lying, immorality, divorce, etc., but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. He also tells us, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. We all make mistakes in life. And we're not characterized by our sins, we're characterized by the redemption. However, there is obviously an understanding that certain sins do carry with them certain stigmas. For instance, and then there are consequences for actions. If an individual decides in the perversion of their mind to defile a young child, they will forever be listed in the sex offender's registry. They will be limited in their interaction with children and for good reason. But even if they get, as they get their heart right with God, there is still the ongoing stigma associated with one who has defiled a child. As a pastor, as I deal with this issue, I, again, I started last year in my study on this, and I have not taken it lightly. Because as Hebrews 13, 17 discusses, I've got to give an account before God. Now the foundation for marriage is to leave your parents and cleave to your wife, the wife of thy covenant, as Malachi 2 discusses. And Jesus draws from the Old, script, Old Testament Scripture, and just as Jesus would have here, you were to look at Matthew chapter 19, specifically speaks also more about this, uh, in this very scenario that is questioned for him. The people, the, 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 the spouses, the husband and the wife become one flesh. A child of those parents 
is one flesh, carrying, bearing the DNA of their parents. And that child, that flesh that comes, is absolutely inseparable. I, you can't split me up between my parents. And God affirms that the joining of a couple in marriage, and God is, he says, what God has joined, don't let any man separate. Mark 10, 9. The forsaking of marriage, the real issue in divorce is unforgiveness and a broken promise. As we looked at last week and week before, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. Would you look with me here in brief? I'm just doing a little bit of review uh, before we pick up where we left off. And I want to add a few things. One of, the, one passage, the passage of Scripture that really caused me some issue was in the book of Ezra where a number of the Jewish people would say, we've married, we married pagan wives, uh, let's get rid of all of them. And I, I couldn't understand, uh, from the understanding, did God sanction this? And that was my thinking, that God wanted them to do that. And, and I, I mean, I really wrestled with this very passage of Scripture, and I'll talk about that here uh, soon. But that caused me probably the most issue as I said, Lord, I don't understand this. There's a lot of things we may not understand, and I wrestled for some time with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, the, uh, the Lord writes to us, the Apostle Paul was the penman, unto the married I command yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. So God gives us to be reconciled with the spouse, or remain unmarried, or, uh, you know, if you have to, separate if the relationship is such uh, where it is uh, harmful, where there's conflict, and, and potentially, uh, if there's abuse, verbal uh, or physical abuse, obviously separation may be warranted for a period of time. And... Um, you know, God could have mentioned remarriage here, but he doesn't. He says reconcile or remain unmarried. That's the two things that God gives us. And uh, many people will discuss the exception clause of Matthew 5, 31 and 32. But let's look with me at Matthew 19 on this, going back uh, to our Matthew. And this is in Matthew, remember, Matthew is written to the Jewish audience predominantly, obviously, because Matthew starts with the Jewish genealogy. And uh, Matthew is written to Jewish believers. Mark and Luke, where this is also mentioned on this very discussion, does not give any uh, room for the exception clause because the Gentiles, uh, it would not be common for a husband to put away his wife, but sometimes in the Gentile world, uh, a wife would put away her husband, which was totally an anomaly to Jewish people. It was always the man putting away the wife. That was a cultural thing. I'm, I'm not saying uh, that's just the way they did it then. But the exception that Jesus gives in Matthew 19, verse 3, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them both male and female? And said, For this cause shall man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. He's saying, I mean, that's a physical union. That's a spiritual union. That, I mean, that is, you are completely uniting with the other person to whom you're marrying. It is an inseparable bond. 
But Jesus, he doesn't go to the cause. He doesn't go to any exceptions here. He goes to what God's intent and God's plan for marriage is. Leave and cleave. Verse 6, Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. He says, listen. I mean, God, but then he says, They say to him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? Verse 8 of Matthew 19 He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So again, he says it's hardened hearts. And then he would say, and I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except to be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. So what does God say? On this he says, don't put her away. And then we also find in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 15, he says, Let not the man put her away. If any, uh, if any brother have a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. If a wife or a husband who is a Christian has a spouse who's not a Christian, the Bible says, don't divorce. That's what it says. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is not sanct, excuse me, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. So the wife is a believer. The husband, if if he has an unbelieving, non-Christian wife, what he's saying is, you stay together because that Christian person, one of the spouses who is a believer, is in a position to have an influence for Christ upon the non-believer. He says, but if the unbelieving depart, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. And so this is, the, and that also, which I dealt with that last week uh, on this. But uh, as we understand that all that is implying is you no longer, if the, if the person says, I don't want to be with you anymore, and they do depart, and they do proceed with divorce proceedings, you are no longer under the obligation towards your spousal duties towards them. But it does not, it's not giving a permission for its uh, remarriage there. Paul reiterated all that Jesus taught as well, that all scriptures God breathed. And look with me at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1. A little bit of review, just as I uh, go through with this. Over and over again, you'll find in the Scriptures that God deals with Israel as a cheating spouse. Now, obviously, we understand that this is spiritual talk, but God gives us the example of the forgiveness that he gives and his dedication to Israel and now his dedication to the people of God, someday united in heaven as the bride of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 1, They say, if a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return unto her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But notice with me what he's saying. He's using a marriage analogy. He says, But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers, yet return again to me, saith the Lord. What is God saying? You've cheated on me, Israel. You've put your heart. Essentially, if someone's going to cheat on you in a spousal, in a relationship, uh, they've given, they've allowed their heart to seek after the pleasures and the pursuits 
and the satisfaction from someone other than your spouse, other than those within the relationship. And it's very hurtful. It's very painful when there's that cheating. I mean, it breaks your heart. And yet God says, Israel, you've cheated on me with others in idolatry, but I want you to come back. God gives us the example. Also in Matthew 19, the word he uses for fornication, pornea, is different from the word adultery, moikeia. Moikeia, excuse me. And so there's a difference In the Old Testament, divorce, death penalty was for adultery. If someone cheated on their spouse in in the the Jewish times, they would stone him to death. Both, both both that were involved in that relationship. So the the word fornication here in, in the context has three different key exceptions. What does that word fornication mean there in Matthew 19 and and also in Matthew 5? Because in Luke 16, 18, you don't find that exception because that's directed towards Gentile believers. Gentiles are all, when I mean Gentiles, it means all those who are not of Israel, all those who are non-Jewish, okay? So uh, Gentiles, all those who are non-Jewish. And I think all of us here would be (laughs) included out. None of us are Jewish. Maybe you do have a little bit in your background. I don't know. But the exception clause here in Matthew refers to to unfaithfulness during, number one, the betrothal period. If you're engaged to someone and you're cheating on them during that engagement period, uh, that was, if you're making that promise, I'm going to marry you, in the Jewish culture, the way they understood things, uh, you're, you're, you know, it was one year, you get engaged, and then during the betrothal period, uh, there's a time of preparing and proving and all of that period during the engagement period. And if someone was found to be unfaithful during that period of time, you could call it off. And that's what you would, you would say, essentially, uh, that's the fornication. During the engagement period, if you can't be faithful to me, then I don't want to proceed forward. The second way that word pornea would also refer to is incestuous marriage. If you find the person you're going to marry is a close relative of you, and, and, and I've heard some stories sometimes, you know, someone might have been adopted as a young child. They go to, uh, later on, they get attracted to a person. They go to marry them. Uh, and then the government says, wait a second, you guys can't marry your cousins or something else. You know, you're a close distant, you know, your close relative. Hey, wait a second. We've been engaged. We found out, hey, we're related. We got to call it off. That's a Jewish culture. Number three, the way that pornea would have been used uh, would have been, should someone have uh, engaged in what we would even see today in homosexual marriage, God say, that's not right, that's not real marriage, and, and so you need to call that off. So, tonight, as we pick back up, I want to look tonight at a passage of Scripture that, because when I, in, in the Ezra passage of Scripture, we'll look in Ezra chapter 8, um, did God sanction the, the divorces in Ezra? Also, I'm going to look at whether remarriage is continuing adultery or it's just a one-time act. And what are the limitations for those uh, who may be remarried uh, if, if their first spouse did not pass away and they're widowed? Now, I'm not pointing any fingers, and I, I really, you know what, my desire was that, Lord, I'd sure like it if there could be an exception clause. I'm just saying, for my personal flesh decision, I said I'd really like it because, you know, that's the more popular opinion, and... Um, 
I said, Lord, I'd like it also because, you know, it wouldn't necessarily put you uh, in a, a narrow position. And I, and I said, well, Lord, I'd really, you know, I'd like that. So I began searching as I looked at all the passages of Scripture, but I could not, in all honesty and, and trueness, genuineness of the Word of God, uh, contrive it under those circumstances. And so based on the language, the diction, and the context of the passages, what, I have, what has been stated uh, is the only logical conclusions, I believe, that you can get from the Word of God moving forward. Now you can look at Matthew 19, Matthew 5, uh, in just those passages of Scripture, and potentially come to that exception clause, uh, which the exception clause, oftentimes by many, uh, would be that uh, if my spouse cheats on me during marriage, uh, you know, after you've been married, uh, then I have room for divorce. But we find in Scripture that Israel, who was many times noted as a bride of the Lord uh, and as spouse of the Lord, was all, you know, God says, I want you back. Though you've cheated on me, I want you back. And so as we look at this kind of idea, uh, we either... And, and I, I had to wrestle with it. I had to say, God, what is your position? And, I, and, and then even the Ezra passage really caused me some struggles. And so let's God, let God's word show us true biblical sexuality and thereby agree with what God says. In the fundamentals of divorce, here's a, Adrian Rogers says, Do you think that those people uh, who have divorced get divorced because they have a problem? And those people who don't get divorced don't get divorced because they don't have any problems. He says, who are you kidding? All couples essentially have the same kinds of problems. If you've ever been in a relationship with someone, would you say that relationship, did you, would you say that relationship ever had a problem? I think every relationship has problems. Every relationship you're going to have disagreements because you have two people who are different that are trying to come together who have different ideas about how the world should work. The difference between an individual who does divorce from an individual who doesn't divorce isn't that there's no problems. The difference is commitment. My dear friend, there are no problems too big to solve. There are just people too small to solve them. All people have problems, but there, are times, there comes a time of commitment where you say, I will cleave to my wife, end quotes. My wife and I were actually just watching a kind of a documentary about an individual today, and... Um, he cheated on his wife. Uh, he was making lots of money. And his wife said, you no longer live here. Here's your stuff. You're gone. But they stayed married despite his infidelity. Now I want to think, because the Lord takes us back though we've made problems, though we've made mistakes. And I am so thankful now, before we get to the Ezra passage in Ezra 8 and 9, I want to show you several things here uh, from Scripture. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, there were Jewish marriages in the Old Testament where a Jewish man or a woman would marry a Gentile, and they didn't divorce them just because they were marrying to a, a Gentile, okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. And for the sake of time, I won't go into all the backstory on these particular uh, situations. I'll give you just a brief thing, and if you're interested, I can give you more. It's quite fascinating on these. But nevertheless, 
Uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, in Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. If you remember who Tamar is, Tamar was a Canaanite and uh, Judah was her father-in-law. She had been married to his son, his oldest son. His oldest son dies. Uh, she then, and then Judah promises her, he says, listen, when my youngest son, my third son, uh, he comes of age, I'm going to let you marry him. She says, okay. Well, that third son comes to age and yet Judah doesn't give Tamar to him. So what does she do? She dresses up as a prostitute along the side of the road. She knows that he's going to be walking that way. She seduces him in, and she has relations with her father-in-law. And from that comes one of the descendants that would be in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, it's amazing what God... You know what? We all make mistakes. We all have flaws in our past, and God can give freedom and, and forgiveness. Look at me, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed. So Boaz, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and, Ruz, uh, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse. Rahab. Salmon has a relationship with Rahab the harlot. Amazing. And then in Ruth chapter 4, verse 10, we also find here Obed of Ruth. Ruth marries Boaz. Again, another Gentile. She was a Moabitess. Which was a, the Moabite was an individual that had, had relations with Abraham's nephew Lot. Lot had relations with his two virgin daughters, and out of that, one of them was Moab. And a whole group of people came from that incestuous relationship. Am I telling you the Bible is, it has some messed up relationships? I mean, it's, there are some things you're like, what in the world were these people thinking? And yet, into that very relationship, the Lord Jesus Christ's lineage. It's amazing. You know, we look back through our family tree and you say, you know what, there's some generations that I look back uh, in our family tree uh, where things are just a little bit awkward, a little bit weird. So we find in the Old Testament almost three fathers in a row, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, all Gentiles marrying a Jew. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 8 now. I'm just laying a foundation Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, verse 18. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the sons of Israel, and Sherebiah with his sons and brethren. 18. Now, God's leading his people, the good hand of our God upon us, right? Then look with me at verse 31 of the same passage of Scripture. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go into Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait, uh, such as lay in wait by the way. Then chapter 9. So God's hand's upon them. Chapter 9, verse 1. 
Uh, now when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in their trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down a stony. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those who had been carried away and I sat a stony until the evening sacrifice. What happens here? They had violated Deuteronomy chapter 7, says don't marry pagan wives, don't marry those within the land uh, that do not know the Lord. Don't marry non-believers, essentially, he's saying. I mean, Israel's divine treatment of my God was because of God's oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 9. Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. He says, Israel, God's blessings upon you was not because you were the largest group of people. Verse 8, but because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, and because he would keep the oath, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 7, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth what? Covenant and mercy with them that love him. And keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Understand this. God says, listen, I made a promise. I fulfill my promise. And then in verse 10 of Deuteronomy, or excuse me, in Ezra 10, Ezra 9, verse 10. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have, we have forsaken thy commandments. So this is where I, I really, I said, God. And then you get to chapter 10. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to have some real struggles here. And, and I'll get there in just a moment. Now, we don't see in chapter 10, now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, we, chapter 10, verse 1, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. You want to know something else, though, we find? If you go to Nehemiah chapter 13, which is after Ezra's ministry to Israel, after that, in Nehemiah chapter 13, we still find Israel with mixed uh, marriages where you have Jews. And I only say mixed marriages, not uh, because there's anything wrong with it. The Bible doesn't speak. Uh, there's no, nothing wrong with it. Uh, one culture marrying another culture. There's nothing wrong with it. Okay, I want to make that very clear. Uh, the, the mixture here is a spiritual one wherein those uh, who are of God are marrying those who are not of God. That's all I'm speaking about, okay, when I mention this. I don't want to, I hope you don't. Pastor said, no, I did not mention there's anything wrong. Uh, and God, if God so leads you to marry someone of a different culture, Praise the Lord. If he doesn't, praise the Lord either way. But that has no bearing on the one to whom you marry. You marry whom God leads you to. But nevertheless, in Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, the Jews were marrying those of the land that were not believers. He says in Nehemiah 13, 25, you shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto yourselves or for yourselves. So just after Ezra is going through this whole problem, hey, we have a whole lot of mixed marriages. Spiritually mixed. 
You'd think sometimes people would say, hey, well, let's stop doing this. God doesn't like it. Nehemiah 13, 27, he says, Shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil, to transgress our God and marrying strange wives? But even here, and so in Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, Ezra weeps before God to put away a wife in the Mosaic law under Moses, Mosaic law, right, under Moses, would not happen because the adulterer would be stoned. King David was not stoned after his affair with Bathsheba, though, but God did, in fact, uh, ask David, uh, you know, in fact, God did not ask David to end his relationship with Bathsheba, but there would be a fourfold judgment upon him. Ezra chapter 10, verse 3. So Ezra goes, God, what do I do? Verse 3. The people say, Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. They said, hey, we've done wrong. Let's get rid of all our wives. We never find God saying do this here. We do not. And that was the key as I was saying, God, why are they doing this? And and you'll read through this passage of Scripture and and they will. They'll get rid of all their wives. I mean, a lot of them get rid of their wives. They divorce them. And I was like, when I read this initially, I said, how do I reconcile this? But verse 3 is the key. The people said. It wasn't God saying do this. Because as I mentioned before this Ezra passage, uh, that there's a number of people that married non-Jewish women. That would be mixed. But God was all for it in those situations. But here in Ezra, it just gives us a historical account. Just, it's a historical record of what's happened here. You can read chapter 10. If you'd like, for the further information on this, I don't have the time for that this evening. But God's blueprint for marriage is number one. Well, let's, in Malachi chapter 2, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Now, what we find in this passage of Scripture in Ezra and in Nehemiah, and then again in, in, in uh, Malachi, is that if a priest married a individual, a spouse from a non if he married a non-believer, then that priest was no longer uh, to be allowed to be a priest. He was removed from his priesthood. So marriages did omit from service as a priest. So there's consequences. Now what is God's blueprint? Look with me in Matthew 7, uh, 24. What is God's... Uh, you know, marriage, all relationships, Matthew 7, 24. I want to establish this with you. All of our life is to be established upon the Word of God. That is the first foundation. Matthew seven twenty four. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. What happened here? 
Jesus is saying, listen, you need to have your life built upon the word of God. So that's the foundation, right? And we understand Malachi 2.16, uh, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away, which God hates divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. And he would say, Israel, you've dealt treacherously against the wife of thy youth, wife of thy covenant. So God is all for following through with covenant promises, even if made in treachery. What if I get married and uh, uh, who she becomes or who he becomes isn't the person I thought they were? Isn't that a good reason? Doesn't God understand? What if the person you married is not the person you thought they were? What if you were deceived in the marriage? Am I still liable to the marriage covenant that I made with them? You know, as I began to think on that, I thought, well, okay, how do you deal with that question? And then God brought to mind the breaking of the Gibeonite covenant with Saul. God is firm on staying true to your covenant. You say, I do, till death do us part. God is saying, okay, you better do until death do you part. Now, there are consequences for not seeking God before making a promise or a covenant with someone. Like marrying an impulsive, hey, let's just get married. Right, an impulsive decision. Sometimes a person may marry just to get out of the house or to... To, to hurt your parents, I'm going to marry this person, or for physical love, or for any other reason. In Exodus uh, chapter 23, verse 32, thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. God is saying, Israel, don't make a covenant with anyone with who, when you come into the promised land. So what is current Israel now? God is saying when Israel would cross over the Jordan River into the, pro- the promised land, he says, don't make a covenant with anyone in that land. That's what God says. Now, Look at, what, look, at, uh, look at with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse uh, 1. There's several things I want to note here. Uh, and it mentions about the last days. We would be in the last days, right? The, the next thing we're waiting for as believers is for the return, is the rapture of the believers into heaven at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. I hope I'm not going too fast. I hope I'm not confusing you. That whole Ezra passage, the people, uh, the people, the priests, and others would put away their pagan wives. But you never find in that passage of Scripture the Lord telling them to do it. They, sometimes in the impulsiveness, or sometimes in our zeal to, to move forward for the Lord with the decision, we do things that are at odds with God and is not God's leading, though you're seeking for holiness, but you do it in your own way. And uh, we find that there in Ezra. And uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Look at with me at verse 3. Without natural affection, truce breakers. Truce breakers. People that are not true to the promises that they make. I promise you I'll do this. And yet they don't stay faithful to that. I want you to look with me at Joshua chapter 9 at God's thoughts on a covenant. What if I make a promise and I'm deceived? I mean, they really lied to me.
Joshua chapter 9, verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they made a league with them. This is the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites are a group of people in the promised land. They're like, uh, Israel's coming. Did you see what they did to Jericho? Did you see what they did to Ai? They're coming for us. We're in trouble. You know, if we don't do something, we're going to be annihilated. They said, hey, let's say we're old. I mean, let's say we've traveled a long distance. And Joshua, would you make a promise with us? Look at our clothes. They're, all of our clothes are old and tattered and they lie. They said, when we first left for the trip, all of our clothes were new and all of our bread was fresh. But now the bread is hardened and it's old and, and, the, and our, our water jugs, are, they're all withered up. And, uh, you know, they, and so they said, Joshua, make a peace with us. Make a league. Make a covenant that, you know, we're going to be friends. And Joshua never goes to God. Verse 16. It came to pass, or verse 17, excuse me. And the, and the children of Israel journeyed and came into their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shephirah and Beeroth and Kirjajiram. And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the princes. But all the princes said unto all the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear to them. Verse 22, And Joshua called for them, and he spake of them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled? That word beguile here means deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land. And to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing. They said, listen, we were afraid. And so we deceived you. Now, one would think, well, I mean, they were totally deceived. Wouldn't that be enough? I mean, wouldn't that be enough to say, hey, this contract is null and void? Look, at, look with me at 2 Samuel 21. Second Samuel 21, verse 1. Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the whom? The Gibeonites. The king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn to them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and wherewith shall I make the atonement, that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? He says, Gibeonites, how do we get God to return and get rid of this famine in our land? We made a covenant and we broke it. How do we get God's blessings back on us? What would happen is they would take seven of Saul's sons and they would slay them. 
You would also find that in later years, 1 Chronicles 12, 4, Ismaiah the Gibeonite, a mighty man among the 30 and over the 30, Ismaiah would be uh, a mighty man in David's army. Then you had a Gibeonite helping Nehemiah to repair the walls of Jerusalem. The Gibeonites would end up acclimating and assimilating into, with Israel. Now, the assimilation and the covenant that was made was ungodly, but they had to follow through with the covenant made. Now, if somebody's in a carnal state and divorces their spouse and then remarries, uh, so I just wanted you to think about that. I mentioned in the last days they shall be truce breakers. Does your word mean anything? Are you, a, are you a man or a woman of your word? If you say, I will, will you follow through? Now, if you said, I will marry someone, and then you find out, hey, there's some things I can't marry them, then you need to say, hey, you know, if you're not married and you make some promises and, you, and, and some things rise up, don't proceed forward into that covenant. But if you've already engaged in marriage, God is saying, don't break that covenant. Don't break that promise. That's what God says. And God here, even in Joshua, 2 Samuel, and then in 2 Timothy, he says, truce breakers, they're not true to their word. Now, so, so even if there is this idea that an individual is not, I mean, there's some deception, but if you've made that commitment of marriage, God says, don't break it off. That's what he's saying. I mean, you can pray and fast and ask God to, to work on the heart of the other individual. You may have to separate if, if needed and then maybe seek for some you know, biblical counseling to move forward with that. But he's saying don't divorce. Now, moving on from this, if someone's in a carnal state, divorces their spouse and remarries, should they divorce their current spouse with whom they've remarried? The only reason why I ask that question is because there are some preachers that would say, if you've remarried, you need a divorce. And I think in that position is actually a very abhorrent position. It is unbiblical. Now, the verbs in Matthew 5 and verse chapter 19 are in the present tense. But the, the offense, as it said, commits adultery, right? Look with me at Matthew 5, 32, going back to our key passage here. Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for for, the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. So it's a, it's a one-time act. How do I know that? I mean, Matthew 19, 9, shall marry another committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Commits, right? So how do I know the remarriage is not continual adultery? So if someone's divorced, and they remarry, whoever marries them, it says the Bible says they're committing adultery. But it's only a one-time act. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. How do I know this? And there are some preachers that would advocate, and I, th- I mean, they would be more of the fringe, I think that's, and that position also creates a whole lot more problems for families. A whole lot. I don't, that is not a biblical position. But I only bring that up because there are some that would advocate for that position. And so to give you some understanding of what the Word of God teaches, I wanted to teach that, okay? I do need to hasten on here. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. If an individual is a perpetual adulterer, then they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They can't. 
As a child of God, I'm an heir. You know what an heir means? It means I receive of the inheritance which God gives to me. Romans 8, 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. So if I'm a perpetual adulterer, some, as some may assert, then I'm not able to, I, I don't inherit the kingdom of God. So you can't say, you know, so, so I enter into this remarriage, I'm a perpetual adulterer, I'm just going with that line of thinking, then the Bible says you don't inherit the kingdom of God. Well then, what do you do with that? Right? So that position falls apart pretty quickly. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and if someone has accepted Jesus Christ and they get into a position, uh, uh, you know, and they, and they walk away from the Lord and things fall apart in their marriage and, and, and you know, they divorce, they remarry, and the Bible, you know, it's a one time act. But what, is, what, do you do if, if someone, what do you do if someone does remarry? Now, if they remarry before conversion, they are washed under the blood. They're forgiven. If they remarry as a Christian, Hebrews 10, 17, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Right? You confess the sin of remarriage, the adultery, as you confess that remarriage is adultery and ask God to forgive you and move on. We're a new creature in Christ. Now, it would be foolish, also foolish, to think that a remarried couple ought to continue to stay married but not have physical... Some would say, okay, you can stay married but just don't have physical intimacy. That is ludicrous. How could you stay married but not have marital relations? That's silly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. He's saying, hey, if you're married... Husband, your wife owns your body, and you please her. Wife, your body is your husband's, and you please him. He's saying, hey, you, it's all about, you know, the pleasing of one another. Verse 5 says, defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. He says, listen, if you're going to have relations, don't defraud. Don't cheat out the other person from... Uh, the satisfaction of being married, the cleaving to one another in the marital relation understanding. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, turn with me back here. I wanted to deal with this one. It is reported commonly that there's fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Why is it not called adultery? Because the son is sleeping with his stepmom. There's a whole lot of problems with that. You would find in the scriptures that uh, that word pornea, or fornication, one of, the issue, one of the lexical meanings or the root meanings of that word would be incest. And that would be an incestual relationship because as we learn also from the Old Testament that that is uncovering the nakedness of your father to have relations with the same person that your father had relations with. Now, 
You also read in the book of Hosea of God's forgiveness. Hosea had a wife who was unfaithful to him. She would go out and prostitute herself to other people. And yet Hosea kept bringing her back to himself as his wife. Sometimes he'd have to buy her back. But he'd bring, him back, bring her back to himself and, and showing God's forgiveness of Israel. And also showing God's resolve to stay married in the relationship with Israel. Now... What are some limitations in remarriage? Sin has consequences and brings with it scars. For an individual, we find in the Old Testament a priest, Leviticus 21.14. Look with me here. I'm trying to hurry through this. Uh, this is the last point before I come to the conclusion. The, the last few points, last ideas, I guess. Uh, major idea. Luke 21.14. Remarriage does bring with it some limitations. Luke 21, 14. Verse 13, And he shall take a wife in her virginity. Verse 14, A widow or a divorced woman or a profane or an harlot, these shall uh, he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. And so he's saying, listen, not marrying one who's divorced. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, it doesn't mention uh, the other things here, but it does in 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. Look with me here. This is Old Testament for the priests, just some things that they were to marry. Uh, and obviously not binding on the New Testament, but it gives an idea. And I want to show you the parallelism uh, that the Old Testament also, there was a lot of similarities with what we have in the New Testament for one who is a pastor, the prerequisites. How, if a man wants to be a pastor, what are the requirements that God has for his life? And uh, there are things, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, a bishop, which is a pastor, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. This is not a polygamous type idea. It is a saying, he's a husband of one wife. If his first wife died and he remarries, he's still the husband of one wife and he stayed true to the covenant he made. Because divorce is a condition of unforgiveness. And then verse 4, look with me here. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. If he was previously married, has children, uh, either from the first wife, uh, he's not going to still contain when that one house. It's not going to stay there. It's not just a polygamous idea, having rule well, one that ruleth well his own house. He has one house, like my wife and I and our daughter, uh, having, having his children in subjection with all gravity, that his children are under his his roof and his leadership and his love and compassion. He's saying, this is my house. I, I'm the leader here. I'm the one that watches over the security of this house. God is saying, listen, this is a man that only has one wife and has only been married once, unless his first wife passed away. And then obviously the Bible always gives um, uh, room for remarriage in, in that instance. Titus 1.6 also says the husband of one wife, 1 uh, Timothy 3.7, uh, about deacons. Or excuse me, it just talks about moreover he must have a good report of them with or out, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, the idea of a of a pastor having a reputation uh, here in his marriage that is good both within the marriage and without. First, <clears throat> but we also find verse twelve talking about deacons. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children their own houses well, uh, and then. You know, and for they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. 
And 1 Peter 5, 3 also tells us, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock, a pastors to be an example to the flock. And so he's called to a higher prerequisite than to those who are not pastors or deacons. This is God's word. Having rule over his own house, letting us know if someone is remarried, then what that does is they're no longer eligible for the position of pastor or deacon within the church. In conclusion, and I know this is not... Again, I know this is not a, a, a favorable position. This is not a, a, some would take quite great, great odds with this. But we must get this in our heart. When you think of love, you're probably thinking of emotion. But when God speaks of love, God is not speaking primarily of emotion. God is speaking of commitment. He's saying, uh, you need to be a person of your commitments. But we do understand that marriage is a commitment of the will. Did my wife and I ever have disagreements in the early days? Do we still have disagreements? Yes, a lot less than we did in the first days. Those first few years, we had disagreements, much more than we do now. And sometimes, unfortunately, they were a little bit more heated. God was teaching me a lot of things. But the command that God gives in Hebrews, excuse me, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself for it. We find here, he says, Husbands, you love your wife. Husbands, you be committed to your spouse. Now, and to the wife also, there's also uh, the respect that is given in Ephesians 5. To it talks about reverence or respect. But again, love is not only the emotion of affection, it is also the decision of a commitment. You know, as my, I love my daughter, and I'm also committed in that love, committed to raising her, to know that I do love her, and I do care for her, and I will be there for her. There's a commitment. Love is more than just some sappy emotion. Now, for those who have suffered a divorce, those who have remarried, and um, don't, do not terminate that marriage. Serve the Lord with your partner, your spouse, and endeavor to be a spiritual rebuilder of that which was once destroyed. There are limitations, but understand this. In the kingdom of God, you are still as useful as everyone else for the Lord. There's limitations on certain positions, but God has called us to serve Him. All sin is to be repented of. We all make mistakes. Final comment and I will be done. Comment from Matthew Henry's commentary. He made them male and female, one female for one male, so that Adam could not divorce his wife and take another, for there was no other to take. It likewise intimated an inseparable union between them. Eve was a rib out of Adam's side so that he could not put her away. But he must put away a piece of himself and contradict the manifest indications of her creation. He was taken from his, she was taken from his side. One flesh until death do you part. Unraveling the truth on divorce is the fact that God hates divorce and no way does God want divorce. Should it come that someone does divorce, God says either reconcile or remain unmarried. That's, that's what God tells us to do. If someone is remarried, confess it as a sin and 
Move on. Let God forget you're forgiven and serve God with all your heart to the last day, to your last breath, as he wants all of us to do. That's God's position on the issue of divorce and remarriage. And I trust that this study has been thorough and that you would understand what God says very clearly in his word. Marriage is a serious thing. God holds promises and he holds us to fulfill our promises, not just because we, well, I just fell out of love or this happened. There's no excuse. God says, stay true to your promises. If we don't stay true to our promises, there are some very unintended consequences, much as we talked about this evening. We must not be a truce breaker. We must not be a lover of self. You know what, marriage, if you're a lover of self and marriage, it's going to be chaos and it's going to be miserable. But if two people, a husband and a wife, will love each other and love God, they love God first, love each other second, it can be a marriage that is absolutely fulfilling. But it takes loving God first with all of your heart. Then I trust, if you're unmarried and eligible, as God says, then you would go forward and make any commitments letting God lead you in the direction to to marry the person to whom you ought to marry. If you are married, stay true to that commitment, even in the hard days. Plead with God, change my heart, change my spouse's heart, help me to love them, Lord. Whatever the situation is in your life, may we honor God, be pleasing to Him with all of our hearts. Now, just because someone might necessarily... Uh, you know, we have a time where sometimes an individual may live with someone just because you're living with it doesn't mean you're married. And so obviously God deals with those as well in Scripture. And he says to be married. And uh, as long as God leads in that direction. But anyways, I just want to, I hope this encouraged you, challenged you to really think about this very topic and what God says. I really wrestled with it. I struggled and I said, God, I gotta have a position that is clearly your words true to all of Scripture. I can't take one context and then struggle with other contexts and try to twist it to fit my worldview. I said it has to be clearly in line and in context with all that God stated. And I believe this position is very that. And so we're, we're going to come to a time of invitation, a little bit different message than would necessarily be preached here on a, Wednesday, uh, on a Sunday night. Uh, but I trust that you would come to the firm conviction in your heart on what God says in light of Scripture, and I trust that as you look at it, you would come to uh, the same conclusion, and uh, may we honor God by our lives and our commitments uh, to those to whom we've made those promises. So with heads bowed and eyes closed this evening, I'll just have a time of quietness, no piano playing this evening, Uh, but however God may have worked in your life, when you're done praying, feel free to look up, and and I will conclude us in, in prayer this evening.